Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. For those of you listening on the day that it comes out, happy Thursday. My apologies for not putting the episode up on Wednesday, but I think I have a decently good excuse in that I went on my first mini vacation in over a year and a half. And don't worry, it was very safe. Me and my other fully vaccinated friend drove about seven and a half hours to my family's condo in Phoenix. And we just spent four days, you know, lying in the sun. And it was a lovely, lovely time. As some of you may know, UCSB is on the quarter system. And that means that we have three 10-week quarters in the time that other schools have two semesters. And so the transition between winter quarter and spring quarter, you only get one week of spring break. And as teachers and students alike will tell you, it is not enough. So I am very happy to say that I feel rejuvenated, rested, and ready to finish out the year extremely strong. And that brings me into another reason that I wanted to wait to put up the episode until today, and that's because I really wanted to record an intro for this episode. Dr. Andrew Kinkella, who is this week's guest, was such a pleasure and just so fascinating and engaging to talk to. Uh, He has his own YouTube channel. Kinkella teaches archaeology, so I would definitely recommend that any of our listeners interested in learning more about archaeology, learning maybe more about underwater archaeology, or just learning about more about Andrew Kinkella in general, checking out his YouTube channel. He has some wonderful videos on there and breaks down some concepts that we maybe touch on in this episode. So if anything kind of piques your interest, I would definitely recommend checking that out. The last thing I have before we get into this week's episode is that on vacation, I started reading Kindred um, Life, Love, and Death um, of Neanderthals by Rebecca Wags. And oh my goodness, so good. I love it. It is a fun read, but I also feel like I'm learning such valuable information, uh, especially I'm taking human evolution right now. But there's just been so many technological developments in the last you know, 20 years that have allowed us to learn so much more about our ancient hominid ancestors than we ever knew before. So, you know, getting to read it in like a really condensed book is awesome. Now, I realized that I have one more thing to tell you all. For those of our regular listeners who listened maybe three or four episodes back to um, Dr. Jennifer Miller, she mentioned that she's been working at Panga Yaseri, this cave in Africa. And when I asked her, have you found any skeletal remains at this site? Because we all know I'm an osteo queen. That's what I love. 
she mentioned that she couldn't tell us the details, but that she would say yes, and we would hear about it in the news pretty soon. Well, on my drive back from Arizona yesterday, I got a very, very fun little um, news article on my phone saying that the remains of a three-year-old child are the oldest known burial in Africa, found at Pegayasari. And I haven't had a chance to fully read the article. Like I said, just got home from my vacation. But I just want to say congratulations to the team at Pangayasity and particularly Dr. Jennifer Miller. Always exciting to be on the cusp of new discoveries. And, you know, that's a really exciting thing about the field. And like I said, with all these technological developments and exploring new parts of the world, the field is constantly changing and I'm so happy to be interviewing the people that are making those changes and, you know, eventually one day contributing to those changes myself. So without further ado, I know this was a long intro, guys. Dr. Andrew Kinkella. And now a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. It is with great pleasure that I introduce this week's guest, UCSB alumni and current archaeology professor and department head at Moorpark College. And is also, we kind of call him an underwater archaeologist, Dr. Andrew Kinkella. So welcome. So happy to have you here. Uh, it's just, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's always a joy for me to sort of come back to my roots at UCSB and um, talk with people who are related to UCSB as well. It's an experience that I hold close to my heart as I go onward in the archaeology realms. That's wonderful. Yeah. So since we are kind of like a UCSB based podcast, or at least I, if people don't know, I think they should know by now, I'm a current UCSB undergraduate student. I thought, you know, we could, we could start a discussion back your first day, freshman year, campus, walking onto campus, what do you remember? Do you remember picking classes? Do you remember, like, what brought you to UCSB in particular? Because I feel like that undergrad choice, you finally having some freedom, you're getting to do what you want, you have this whole course catalog, and you're like, ooh, what do I pick? So what what was your experience like? <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the short answer is it was super exciting. Um, the longer answer is, let me take you back, children, to the fall of 1990, it was. Uh, and for me, uh, I was coming straight from home, straight from being a high school senior, you know, and I'm from the Bay Area. So I just packed my car, which was my parents' old car. And then I left San Leandro, California, which is where I'm from. It's basically Oakland. And I drove down to Southern California. Now, I'd been to Southern California a handful of times, you know, going to Disneyland or whatever. But I, showing up at UCSB, it was like, I'm in an early 1960s beach movie. 
oh my God, you know, uh, and, and I mean that in the best possible yeah. sense of the cliche. Yeah. Um, and so just, just the, that beach town, Southern California vibe is something that I immediately enjoyed uh, and felt at, at home with. I do remember picking classes. The early nineties were a time of, of big change technologically mm -hmm. in terms of doing this stuff. So my very first semester, I think I got there a few days early for like orientation or whatever. Yeah. We, we had to um, pick our classes on like a Scantron. You had to like bubble in your choices. And that was the only time I did that. After that, it was like on the phone. There was like a phone system. Mm. Um, and and uh, I took three classes. I, I remember this. I took oceanography because one of the people working at orientation said oceanography was cool. So I'm like, okay. I took that <laughs> and, my first quarter too. Yeah. I just, you know, I had a vague idea, but I was going to be a drama major. And um, so I took one drama class and then I took intro to archaeology with Professor Brian Fagan, which as I sit here today is about, you know, 14% of the reason I'm talking to you right now. What was hilarious that very first quarter as I, as I went through it is actually the drama class was really boring. Like it mm -hmm. had... Uh, it had a boring professor that while the archaeology class, Professor Brian Fagan is just the consummate lecturer and storyteller. So you would think the drama class would be exciting and the archaeology class would be boring, yeah. you know, but it was the exact opposite. And uh, at the at the end of that first quarter, I I wasn't sure if I want to be an archaeologist or not. But Professor Fagan was so inspiring that I was like, you know, no matter what, I want to be like that guy. Because uh, he had just such great stories of where he traveled and everything. And it was just, it was a big inspiration, kind of a first step for me of, of thinking, this might work, you know? And as the years went by at UCSB too, I, um, I also enjoyed, I ended up being part of a comedy team down, down on Ooh. State Street. So I did a show, the comedy sports show that was on, on State Street. And then I was also a lifeguard at the Montecito YMCA. Those so, are two very different things. <laughs> they, they are. But th that's also one thing I would recommend like to students yeah. while you're at UCSB, enjoy what's there. Have those experience. Get, get, a, job, get a job on campus if you possibly can. Um, uh, follow the other things you're passionate about that are, that are beyond school. You know, the stuff I did with the improv comedy team only helps me as a college professor only helps me in front of an audience. You know, um, some people are very, very afraid to give a presentation at like the SAAs or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. because I've done a show in front of angry biker gangs who say you better be funny, you know? So it, it's those kind of experiences really informed my career later. And I just recommend everyone at UCSB to, enjoy what UCSB has to offer because there's just a lot of great stuff you can do. That is very, very true. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the shoes of Brian Fagan have been filled well with Bryce Erickson, who, you know, comes in with the same enthusiasm and in intro to archaeology, though he does it in classics department. So his is because his 
training is in classical archaeology, so Greek mm -hmm. stuff. But yeah, he definitely he definitely has that same storytelling quality. And I think any one of his students will say that because he teaches quite a few things, including the very popular Greek mythology that like fulfills a ton of requirements and like half of UCSB students take it. Um, right. Yeah, in Campbell okay. Hall. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think I did. I think I took mythology for the exact same reason. Mm -hmm. I think it was like classic 40 or something. I don't yep, know. Yep, it is. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm... I'm appalled uh, yet shocked that I remember that. You know the mm -hmm. the, the numbering system. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Brian Figgin was uh, was great, and that the art of the storytelling is something I take serious seriously as a college professor, and and something that I like hone and try and do well because honestly, we learn through storytelling. That's how we yeah. learn. We don't learn from key terms and facts. We learn from like, oh my God, guess what happened. Yes, we learn from experiences that we're going to hold on to or even like reading or visualizing it differently. You know, some people like a like a video might help them, might make it stick in their brain. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I was watching one of your YouTube videos, which we'll talk about, you know, more later, which I love the channel. I think it's a great idea, especially because it literally just fits in to exactly what you're doing. I'm sure a lot of these videos that you're creating topics on are like questions you're getting asked in class, you know? Exactly. So um, I heard that you did get the chance when you were an undergraduate to go to Belize and be in the field, you know, early on. And I also had the opportunity to be in the field, you know, early on in my undergraduate career. I think it really has an impact when you start doing that from, you know, day dot. Yes. Um, and I would say that's the, the number one thing you should do, you know, as an undergraduate or at UCSB, no matter what your major is, is take advantage of those like real um, practical experiences or field experiences or hands on kinds of things. You know, if it's between taking that one class on that upper echelon theory and mm -hmm. the field methods in archaeology, good God, take the field methods class. You know, you can read the book on the theory thing, but that that experience stuff, it pays so many dividends. I mean, I, I've seen I, I've, I've seen grad students who've never been on a field school, which I think is just shocking. I'm yeah. like, you don't even know if you like archaeology or not, you know, and you're in grad school for it. How did how did this happen? So um, I for, sort of first and foremost, I just got to say, like, field school, field school, field school. Take several. Um, mm -hmm. I actually took two through through UCSB. The first one was in 1993. I was, I think I was the same year you are. I was a junior. And I had heard, I had a friend. Um, this And also another thing, make friends yeah. while you're <laughs> at school, you know. Get to know people. That's where um, you get all the good opportunities from. Totally. One of my friends, I said, my friend Robin, she was like, Andrew, I, there's this woman at UCSB. She works in Belize on the ancient Maya. I think you'd like to work with her. You should go see her, you know? And I did that classic uh, undergraduate student thing where I walked up to her door and I was super reticent and I just kind of like knocked, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, um, hello. So, um, Dr. Ford. I heard you like working the Maya and stuff, you know, like I, I yeah. was so self-conscious and she was very cool. She's like, yeah, here, what, what you know, mm -hmm. come on in. And I'm like, um, so do you need any help? Like in your lab and stuff. And, and she's like, she's like, sure. Yes. And, and I set it up and I can't remember what I did. I think I probably worked like one afternoon every week. Let's say it was Thursday afternoon, mm -hmm. you know, and I worked in her lab every week. 
just doing like sorting slides and organizing artifacts and stuff like that. And then when the spring came around, you know, she's like, you know, I take students to Belize and I'm like, um, so like, could that be me? You know, (laughs) he's like, sure, just apply. And she asked me the questions they always ask. So if any of you guys are interested in, you know, going on a a field school, they're going to ask you things like, have you, um, have you ever done any traveling, you know, out of the United States? Do you have a passport? What are your, um, can you eat any kind of food? Do you have any allergies? You know, like, can you operate Mm -hmm. in a, in a sort of extreme environment? They should make sure to ask you, like, can you deal with dirt and bugs? Oh yeah. Cause there was a couple people on like day one of field school that just looked terrified. I mean, I wasn't like thrilled about it, but like I was ready for it. <laughs> of course there's always, there, and there's, there's always, there's almost always someone who has to go home for some sort yes. of medical, like they have extreme um, asthma and they just can't That happened take to someone on my field school. Yeah. Right. So, um, so Annabelle was very good. She, she knew the score. She was very good at sort of um, calling down people. And then we went for our entire spring quarter. So the spring quarter of 1993, I was in Belize for like 12 weeks or whatever it was. And that was just a transformative experience. We worked at the site of El Pilar, which is a large Maya site on the border, right on the border between Belize and Guatemala. Most of it's in Belize and a little bit bit is actually in Guatemala. Um, But going there every day, working in the jungle, it's every romantic cliche of archaeology, again, in the best possible sense. I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the jungle with the, look, oh, look, there's a snake and they're going to square hole in an ancient Maya site. And this is fantastic. You know, I just, it got in my blood. I, after that, again, transformative is the only word for it. After that experience, I was like, more of this, this is the thing. You know, I I didn't know if I wanted to go to grad school. I didn't know any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I just knew like, I wanted to keep doing this travel to do archaeology thing and I really liked I was really interested in the Maya too just as a culture and as their story you know of the past I always just really um enjoyed that so yeah so it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier you know my experience was so transformative I hope my students have the same and I always I I have connections to Belize to this day where I I've set up lots of my students on uh, field schools and stuff so that's my big, you know, um, sort of vote towards do this thing. I did this and it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's wonderful. And I also think that it's really awesome that what you say is I want to share that joy and that passion with my students. So, you know, your current role as a professor of archaeology and department chair at Moore Park Community College Um you know, I want to talk about that, but also you are the director of the Moore Park College Archaeological Pro- Program, which I think is great, and I'm sure is a really awesome program for, you know, the students to be a part of. Uh, and clearly, you must be super busy doing, you know, your research and teaching. So how long have you been working at Moore Park? We'll start there, and then, yeah, we'll go. Sure, forward. sure. So, um, man, I, I, let's see, I started at Moore Park in the fall of 2004, so, oh, so you've been there year, a while. Yeah, so this is year, I've been full-time the whole time. So this is year like 17. I was very lucky. I got my job before I was finished with my PhD. I got it while wow. I was still a grad student. That was um, that was just a big luck shot for me. Although it was luck with a focus, if that makes sense, where I, um, 
while I was a student, I was always focused on something like that, on the teaching aspect of archaeology. Now, I didn't know if that was going to be in the four-year world or the two-year world, but that's what I wanted. I want to be on stage, you know, telling, mm-hmm. doing the Brian Fagan, you know, yeah. given the story of the past in the most um, dynamic way that I, that I could, just because that, that, that is like my strength. So that's, is, is talking to people about this kind of stuff, talking to an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got my gig, you know, um, pretty, pretty early on. Um, I have been the department chair for a while. Uh, and that has taught me some about the, the other side of academics, mm-hmm. some like, like the Dean side of things and whatever yeah. kind of how the sausage is made behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. The um, bureaucracy. Definitely. So it's, <laughs> it's been a learning, learning experience, which I, I've been happy to do. I wouldn't say it's a joyous thing. Yeah. Um, the word joy would be odd there, but I'm glad, I, I'm glad I've done it. Like I recommend any professors out there to be mm-hmm. department chair for, for a little while, just to see. It gives you a, a new uh, angle on, on yeah. dilemmas and things that come up in the, in the, in the college world. So I'm happy to do that. And then um, finally, in terms of uh, the Moorpark College Archaeology Program, I was really lucky that when I got hired, the old professor who was retiring had set up the nuts and bolts of it. Like he had a trailer, he had screens, he had buckets and shovels and stuff. And he had a network of people like Native American Monitor who he knew, who he could, you know, introduce me to. So I was able to take the reins from him. Uh, his name is Bob Lopez. Bob, Bob's great. And I, I, and then sort of move on. I didn't have to invent it. Um, and while I'm doing that, the the archaeology program, I always think back to UCSB and I think back to what I wanted as a student. Mm-hmm. What did I want? You know, I wanted experience, like real ex- hands-on experience. I wanted to know why I was there. I've worked on other projects that like weren't related to UCSB, but I, I've worked on on some that sometimes you're out there as an archaeologist or as a student and they don't tell you like what you're doing. You know, they're just like dig this hole mm-hmm. and you're like, for what? And so I, I've always kept that in my mind. I've been like, bef- before you do anything, make sure the students know like the background of the site, what's going on, what the time period is, you know, all that kind of stuff just makes it so much better. Not everyone does that. Um, with the Park stuff, I, I run it where there are three classes that I run one per semester and they're all day Saturday. So one class is the field class where we go, we're fortunate enough to have access to a local uh, archeological site that we work at. So we do, you know, old school one by one units, screens, you know, all this stuff. Native American monitor comes out, which I, which I really enjoy because the students get to see how it works. I, I kind mm-hmm. of run it in a, CRM vibe just so yeah. the students get the experience that they can then parlay into a, a hired career if they don't yeah. want to go into the academic world but so also so that they can understand how California archaeology works I mean with NAGPRA like that is the norm if you're working on a site like that so it's great that they're just getting that you know in, initial exposure to to those methods right and I, again that's something it, it uh, I feel pride. I, I'm proud yes, of how the, how the uh, MCAP program has, has turned out. I've had lots and lots of students go through this. I, I feel good when I go to all the local like museums and stuff. It's like, hey, Kinkala, Kinkala, what's up? Yeah. And I'm like, my army, my army is growing. Um, 
so that that makes it feel really good when students you know move on and they and they stay in it and they enjoy it and they, it's something that they can enjoy and be passionate about so the um so i have the first semester where we do the excavation at the site and then i have a mapping class the second semester where we visit different local archaeological sites a different one each uh mm -hmm. each each saturday and then we use different mapping techniques if it's like a gps or a compass or transit or whatever there's yeah. a bunch of different ones so basically every weekend's like different spot different mapping technique and you make a different map you know and then uh finally i have a lab class where we process the artifacts that we've found at the original field class before so those three classes uh, i i just churn you know on every one a semester so well, I mean, I think that you've definitely accomplished the what would I have wanted as a student. I mean, those students all that have been through that program are extremely lucky to have received such great training in a class. Like you're saying, it's not even something that they have to go out of their way to like join a club. You know, right. they can get credit for it. They can incorporate it, you know, into their their uh, their school plan. You know, I think that that too is really valuable because I think COVID is highlighting areas that we've maybe been a little insensitive to people's needs of the word is slipping my mind but availability and access accessibility to various resources uh -huh. yeah and if they have you know family members that they take care of or they have to work a full-time job while they're in college you know things like that that i think covid is making us really realize yeah the accessibility thing is really front row center in a lot of community college stuff mm -hmm. and as, as it should be. And I'm, I'm happy that it is. And um, it makes me feel good that that my class is Saturdays only. So you can do mm -hmm. it if you have a 40 hour job, if you're a parent yeah. or whatever, you can maybe find time on a Saturday to come. It, in terms of field schools, man, I dare you to find one cheaper. You know, this yeah. is three units that are about forty five dollars per unit plus, you know, in other little expenses. But that's, you know, beyond dirt cheap for a field yeah. school um and and uh yeah i may i'm able to you know run this thing and and have these students who get real experience which i've i've also if i might be so bold and and brag a little that i've had i've had plenty of students from four-year local four-year universities come take my class because they couldn't yes. get four-year world uh, yeah Unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is almost becoming a black arts of teaching, you know, where it's rare that it, that these things are, are offered. Mm -hmm. um, to give another shout out to UCSB, I mean, my field class, I, I, I've stolen tons from Mike Glassow. I took Mike Glassow's field class when I was a student. His was Saturdays, and I, mm -hmm. I, I it, he might not have known it, but I was listening, you know, and, yeah. and I've I've sort of recreated a lot of what he did. The mapping class is one of one of my professors, Phil Wilkie at Riverside. He had a mapping class and I just like um, took what they did. So a lot of what I do, I try and think back to when I was a student. What did I want? You know, what, what worked for me? What did I enjoy? And then I try and do that. Definitely. And I think that's, you know, the, the best way that you can, you know, serve your students. Um, do you have any other like particular lectures or activities that are kind of popular with with the students? Do you find that they watch your YouTube videos as well? Yeah. Um, so in terms of what's popular with them, the personal stories are always popular. It's like, you know, the so there I was in Belize and guess what happened to me? Uh, my tales of woe, tales of getting sick, tales of getting lost, mm -hmm. right? Those are always great. And I, I love telling them, those are fun. Um, 
for my YouTube channel, I, the students tend to really like it. I think just because I'm myself, they're short, you know, a lot, most mm -hmm. of my YouTube videos are like four minutes long or whatever. Um, but in terms of stuff I do in class that I think go over well, off the top of my head, in Intro to Archaeology, I always do this thing that I've dubbed the Skeleton Journal, and the name is just Ooh. stuck. It's, it's just a series of on-ground activities that we do. We go outside as the archaeology class, and we do stuff. And a lot of it relates to the Saturday class stuff. So we'll do a mapping day where I, um, I have a bunch of compasses that I've bought over the years, and I bring them out. Everyone gets a compass. And you have to pace and compass one of the buildings at Moore Park College. And it's hilarious how close that is to pacing and compassing a structure in the middle of the jungle. It's the same thing. So they do that and they have to make a pace and compass map. That's one day. Again, it's outside. Another day outside, there's a place at Moore Park where I have them dig a square hole as a class. Most of it's in the setup. You know, one by one meter, you have to string it out. And then we dig and we write down what we've found. Um, and another day outside, we also do a stone tool day where I always joke, there will be blood. There will be blood um, because obsidian is sharp. So we do a stone tool day where I, I show them how to do it and I take volunteers and they're out there with a hammerstone and some uh, obsidian going for it, you know, tr trying their best to make a flake. Mm -hmm. So those and realizing how hard it was to be an ancient human with very limited technologies, right? The skill, you know, and the mm -hmm. focus, and you got to hit that sucker. The angle's got to be just right, or it's not going to work. So that making of the skeleton journal, you know, through those experiences, and of course they have to write everything down. That's what goes in the journal. Um, that I really like doing because the students like it. I like to get them outside. Um, Especially we live in sunny Southern California, you know, absolutely. it's always an option. <laughs> absolutely. And, and so much of what we do, kind of this computer stuff and whatever, focus us on the inside. Yeah. So it's like, nice to focus outside. And it is archaeology. You want to see if you, you know, outside. Um, so I, I do find that I think they tend to remember that. And what's funny is oh, there's a, a certain spot on campus where I do the excavation outside. Mm -hmm. Sometimes other students who've had me other semesters walk by and they're like, oh, skeleton journal. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and so you get to be a part of this little club, the mm -hmm. club that's done the skeleton journal. And, and I find that it kind of helps students create bonds too, because they have to work together when they're outside. Yeah. And so I, I like that fringe benefit too. Definitely. I'm curious where the name Skeleton Journal came in because I'm not really seeing <laughs> the skeletal aspect. Man, um, it, I, I needed it. This was like, I started doing this like a decade ago. Mm -mm. Um, I needed a title one yeah. Sunday night and I'm like, ah, Skeleton Journal, I'll change it later. Yeah. But then I didn't. And then so it like, it's, it's so funny how in, I can think of several times in archaeology where it's been like that, like a site name or like, you know, a project name where you just slap a name on it. Yeah, there's very little skeletons in the skeleton journal, yeah. but it's vaguely archaeology. Name. The osteologist in me was like, oh, so when it's so weird, when is the skeletal part coming in? And then it just didn't. I know. I, I think at some point I had one because I'm, I'm always sort of adding. There's other projects. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the early days I had some skeletal thing but then i think i i think i took it out took it out because i'm like oh well they have bioanthro lab so they can get the yeah stuff. that's what i was gonna say mm -hmm. you can only cover so much information and we do have so many different classes and you know niche offerings of anthropology for yeah. that very reason 
Um, but yeah, I mean, always, I always love a good, love a good, love a good skeletal, skeletal reference or educational moment. I have my, um, uh, for forensic anthro, she mailed us the materials and I have my cast skull out. And for my birthday, I put a birthday hat on it and yeah, it's part of my life. <laughs> yes. The, the, the enjoyment of the skeletal casts, uh, is yeah. Part of archeology. span I will also, oh, I'm going to brag again about more park college. I will say that our, our skeletal collection, our casts of, mm. um, like uh, the the various human ancestors and Lucy and all that, our our cast collection just kicks ass. It's great. Yeah. Um, I would put ours up towards any four year university actually if I yeah. would be so bold because we have everything. We have we have a, Lu- a full on Lucy skeleton cast. We yeah. have um, uh, Homo. Uh, we have uh, Homo. I think we have Homo erectus. We we got mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. So yeah, just this year, just this year, uh, we got funding to do that as well. And I mean, the the amazing way that they can create these casts now to be so comparable and like you can put Lucy's femur in the hip, hip socket and look at the way she walked. We were just talking about that in human evolution. Um, and it's, it's incomparable, mm-hmm. especially given how, she, you know, Dr. Crone was explaining to us too, that for so long, paleoanthropologists have kept these fossils like locked away. Like this is my you know, finding. And it's like, (laughs) I don't want anyone else to know what the exact, you know, specifications are. So now that it's like so accessible and reproducible with cast and I'm sure even like at some point, like 3d printing is going to come into it. It hasn't already. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's it's, it's pretty great stuff. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Now I'd like to dive, haha, get the reference. Oh, into your research, which focuses on cenotes in Belize, which I was telling my friend the other day, she asked, oh, who are you having on the podcast? Because my, my friends and family are so kind and really like always ask about what's going on in the podcast. And I said, have you seen those really picturesque Instagram pictures that everyone posts when they go to Mexico of these little like caves? And she was like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I was like, I'm going to learn all about those. So Dr. Kinkella, can you tell us all about how you got involved researching this area? And I suppose we probably give a little background on like what a cenote is like in general, in case people can't picture it in their head. And, you know, what interests you about these, you know, these places? Sure. Um, yeah. Oh, man, there's so much here. So I guess, you know, if you if you sort of Google my name or, or look for me in the academic world, this is kind of what I'm known for. This is sort of the t-shirt I wear, you know, Andrew Kinkello, the cenote guy. Um, and the, the path to it is, is something, again, for students listening, I, I was able to merge two things that I had skill in and that I was passionate about. And I would highly recommend for you guys, you know, as you go forward, especially if you're gonna be a grad student or whatever, if you can find these moments where you can pull disparate things together that you already have skill in, more the better. So mm-hmm. I was already a, a diver. Now I wasn't a super accomplished diver, but I already had my scuba certification. And um, going back to working with Annabelle Ford at El Pilar, um, after I worked with Annabelle, I worked with her for two summers her, one of her graduate students, Lisa Lucero, was starting a new project in another area of Belize. 
And she got in touch with me and she was like, Andrew, how would you like to be my field director? Which is a, wow. a promotion, right? Yeah. And, and I was like, sure, Lisa, this is great. Again, I met her on the LPLR project. Again, make friends, mm-hmm. make friends, friends are good. <laughs> so Lisa's starting her new project and it's in the middle of Belize in an area called the Valley of Peace. And it was 120 square miles of just jungle, you know, very, with very little work that had been done. And I noticed on the map at the top, there were 25 cenotes in a line, you know? And I was like, and I was just starting my graduate career. I was like a new master's candidate. And I'm like, Lisa, the cenotes at the top, could I work on those? And Lisa was like, sure, that can be your thing. She was so giving to me, you know, Lisa was, and, and gave me the freedom to fail, which is something that is so generous for a faculty member to give. Not everyone does this. You know, she, Lisa trusted me and just said, okay, you could do that. So I figured out my own kind of research design and my research project and everything for my master's thesis. And I focused on one cenote, right? Uh, Luckily enough, we numbered it pool one. Now, what is a cenote? The cenote is like a natural mini lake, like you you were saying, right? And it's it's in the jungle and it's because it's a, a limestone world like the ancient Maya world underneath it the, that whole area is limestone limestone is very porous so over time it just breaks down on itself and what happens is you just get these wells basically where there's you know there was ground and then all of a sudden it falls through and most of these and then it fills with groundwater so most of these are like let's say they're 200 feet wide they vary but but think of it in that world and they can be really deep the mm-hmm. deepest one we worked on was 240 feet deep. Um, but they vary a lot in their depth. But they're, they're these sheer sided. So when you dive in them, the edges are flat, you know, just straight down like a pool. Um, and so that, that's how those are made. And the ancient Maya, of course, use those for water. They use those for ritual. Just depends. And, and my mm-hmm. master's and then my PhD was all about explaining how the ancient Maya used these cenotes in, in this area of, of their world, you know, which one of these were for ritual, which one of these were just for drinking mm-hmm. water, you know, which sites did they relate to all that kind of stuff. You, as I talk about that, you can see how the, the uh, masters or, or the dissertation would just kind of write itself. You see how, yeah, what you would talk about, you know, you would map the cenotes and then talk about how they're related. And, and are they fresh water? Yes. These are all freshwater. Um, they they break straight through to the aquifer, and so these are all these are all freshwater cenotes um, that are just sort of sheer sided. And yeah. then so in, in those early days, yeah, I just came up with a plan. Again, Lisa was kind enough to just let me do it. I we we brought um, scuba tanks that we drove them down from New Mexico. So the very first time I ever dove into a cenote, I was breathing New Mexico air in Belize you know, just mm-hmm. starting to explore this cenote with, with one of the other students, the two of us were dive buddies and we just went. And then that kind of started the academic career portion of what I do. Yeah, which is so cool. And, you know, also you've been able to, you know, map and examine these cenotes. I'm really interested in the water ritual part and what more we know about that, especially because I just think like ancient rituals are so fascinating because I feel like, you know, now we have nothing that's comparable 
to these ritualistic, sometimes religious, like ceremonies that they would do, I suppose, maybe like in church or something. But I think mm-hmm. it's it's just not at the same level that it used to be the same grandioseness. So uh, I'm just curious to learn a bit more about that. Sure. Um, well, first, you know, the big joke in archaeology is if you don't know what it is, it must be for ritual. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, we want to be careful like what we ascribe to, oh, this really looks like it could be ritual versus, no, nah, that's that's just three plates. There's nothing ritualistic about yeah. plates. You know, so, uh, but I would say that some of the cenotes that we've worked on in Belize, especially Pool One, the first one, really does seem to have a ritual component to it. Now, what is that? Um, based on the archaeology based on what the Spanish wrote down um, when they were first there and what they saw in the northern Yucatan, we can kind of piece together um, what may have happened in, in cenotes like, like Pool 1. And basically, underlying the Maya belief system is corn. Everything's about corn. You better grow your corn or nothing happens, you know, because sort of corn is life. And to have corn, you need rain. So in, the, in order to have rain, it's sort of is connected to the water cycle and water ritual. So if things are going a bit poorly, um, you may want to hype up your, your water intake and hopefully it'll mm-hmm. rain more. So one thing they would do is they, they would have these ritual ceremonies at the cenote. And we see evidence of this at Pool One because there's a building there on the edge of the cenote like there's a little building right there now they had they took a lot of time and effort to build that building why would they you know uh and the building's actually constructed quite nicely for a building in that in that area so they took they took time to make this thing and it's similar to other cenotes in other parts of the the mesoamerican world where they would have done water ritual there and it 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 could go as extreme as actual human sacrifice in this kind of thing now, I don't want everyone to think that there's a human sacrifice every day in the Maya world or something like this. This would be sort of a special situation um, and didn't happen all the time. There's yeah, like you were saying, maybe if they were desperate, you know, they're trying to appease the gods, like if they're in a drought or something, that right. then those kind of actions become more common. Right. And it's still it's still on the rare side. Again, this gets so much play, you know, in the media and this kind of stuff. I don't want to overstate mm-hmm. it. But at the same moment, there's real evidence for this. You know, the Spanish saw this kind of kind of stuff. You find human remains in the cenotes in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in in a in an extreme form, the idea would be you would take this sacrificial person, which is usually a captive from warfare from one of the other warring city states, which would make sense, or a bastard child. That is true. Those are the two most common. Um, types of human remains found and and from the spanish stories what what it it seems to be and then to sacrifice them you're basically going to cut them through the chest um the the big deal here is that they bleed because the blood must run like rain and remember this is a ritual sacrifice so it's got to count this is a serious serious thing uh we don't want to think that the ancient maya were somehow different from us that they were somehow like colder or somehow just focused on their gods all the time or something they weren't they were people like you and me they would understand that you know they would have that severe feeling of like oh my god this is serious you know Mm -hmm. but i guess i guess this is we're gonna have to do this you know it, it 
I want to make sure that we mm -hmm. understand that human component where they're not just blindly praying to the sun or something yeah. like that. So, um, so you, you slice the blood runs as rain and then the person is thrown, you know, into the cenote. There's a lot of other rituals that can go with it as well, but that's yeah. the, you know, kind of the capper. Um, and, and again, it depends on the cenote. Not all cenotes were used for ritual. Some were used for ritual sometimes, um, you know, and then other times it would change. The, the Maya have been there for thousands and thousands of years. So uh, it depends on time period. Uh, we do tend to see more activity in this kind of stuff, like in the terminal classic, which is right below mm. before the big Maya collapsed. So you tend to see that. And also what happens in cenotes, it's very similar in the cave world too. So my friends who work in cave archaeology, I find that a lot of things they find, a lot of ideas they have are very similar to what I do. Yeah. I was watching right before uh, we started talking your explanation of like how you became an underwater archaeologist, which also I think is a good video to reference people if any of this like piques your interest. He kind of broke down to like your different diving certifications because mm -hmm. diving in super deep uh, and cave environments like does require special. My father's a scuba diver and my stepmom was a dive master in Thailand. Mm -hmm. So um, that was that was fun to listen to. Also, but, um, you know, you have this YouTube channel called Kinkella Teaches Archaeology, and you've had it for a few years now, which I'm sure um, I always imagine just because knowing with my podcast how I started out and like where I am now, your goals and your ideas change so much. So, you know, where are you at right now with it? What's the kind of feedback you're getting? How do you see it going in the future? Yeah, you know, this is it's so fun to talk to you about something like this because you'll understand, mm -hmm. you know, because you're running a podcast yeah. is extremely similar in terms of your kind of initial kernel for an idea mm -hmm. and how it kind of morphs a little over time and the feedback you get from the audience and yeah. where you want to take it and how you want to this is very cliche, but how, sort of how you want to brand yourself. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes, the to, brand. You have to think of all that stuff. So basically how this happened, you'll probably get a kick out of this. Um about three years ago, I had like a come to Jesus meeting with myself alone in my office. Basically, I was sitting there and I was thinking about a couple things. I'd, I'd been like, you know, I kind of want to start a YouTube channel. And I thought of it for a long time, but I was scared. You know, like I wasn't sure. I'm like, will it come out crappy? Am mm -hmm. I going to look like an idiot? You know, it's like, do I, do I know enough or what? You know, you have these things you think yeah. of where you're like, oh, I'm We're not always trying to talk ourselves out of things. Right. Yeah. Somehow you're not good enough. And then, and the other thing at the same time was I, I kept getting about once a year, I get some offer from some sort of production company to be involved in some sort of documentary on mm -hmm. archaeology. Right. I, I get I just kept getting these maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. And I had no organization for any of this stuff. And so in my office at that moment, I was just like, screw it. I'm doing it. Like, I, I remember that moment where I'm like, mm -hmm. I am going to put energy towards yep. organizing my media life. And so I did two things that week. I, I filmed myself uh, for like a real for a, a group called Past Preservers, which is now my representation. They're, they're sort of my agent cool. um, for like documentary movies and stuff. And, and I also started my YouTube channel. 
And and I originally did the YouTube channel just to be like, I'm going to answer the questions I get all the time. What do they mm-hmm. ask me all the time? And 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 the stuff that I want the students to know that I'm always hammering all the time. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm just gonna start filming myself do this. So I set up my camera in my office. Um, you learn fast, as I'm sure you have about the technology side mm-hmm. about, oh my God, I need better audio. Oh my God, yeah. wait, video, oh, wait, the lighting. Um, and so l- luckily I was actually a double major ultimately. Um, I was a major in archeology span and film when I was yeah. at UCSB. So I, my background in film totally helped me out. That's as, as an aside, that's something I would recommend students listening to this. The smartest thing I ever did in academia was be a double major. Number one, I put that even above being a PhD or any of that stuff. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I know that you did that. And I know in your master's, you also focused on theater stuff as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah I'm, I think it's so great that you had that opportunity. It, it's, it, it just, it opens your door wider of possibilities, you know, and it, and it does, it gives you weird fringe benefits. Like it makes you more memorable. And what I mean by that is like in the film world, I was the archeology span guy. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes, ooh, the archaeology guy. And then in the archaeology world, I was the film guy. And everybody like, ooh, the film guy. You know? And so it's weird stuff like that that's going to help you in your career. It's not the one time you got an A in that one class. Mm-hmm. You know? It's it's that other more esoteric stuff. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I, in terms of, of making my YouTube channel, using my film stuff, I... Uh, I just started making these videos, putting them up. The very first month or two was very, you're just in, in a cave in the darkness. You know, you're just making these things and you're yep, like, and they're just putting them out there. Yeah. You're like, I have no idea. Is this, are people watching these and going, boo, you suck. Or are they like, mm-hmm. um, but I started to get some decent feedback. Um, I started to get more and more views, more and more subscriptions and that kind of stuff. Um, and it just went on from there. I, I, I got a little better with my technology. Um, and, Love the and intro. Started, yeah, right. Uh, my brother works in, in the media world. So he actually put together that little uh, animated thing. Mm-hmm, where it's he great. teaches archaeology. So it's, hey, do you use who you know? My brother did that for me. Um, and then I just started asking my students, like, what do you guys want to hear? What do you guys want me to talk about? What do you need? You know, I ask everyone, Pe- people um, from the the internet who write yeah. me stuff, like, like they're like, can you do one on this? I, I totally listen to that. Like, mm-hmm. that's what I, I do, like what the people want, you know? Um, and my YouTube channel is another thing. It's like the, the Morpork College archaeology program thing. And my YouTube channel is something I'm proud of too, because yes, it's like, you should be. I, I just, it's me. Like when I watch it, I'm like, that's me. Mm-hmm. If you, if you want to take a class from me or you want to like hire me for a video or something, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. That's, that, that's who I am, you know? And so I really like that. It's like that. And again, it's lighthearted. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, cause I, that's how I do myself in the yeah. world. I'm, I'm not putting on a weird, like, acting costume or something i'll be andrew the archaeologist now yeah. and that it, it, i'm just myself you know mm-hmm. and i've learned that too just the more honest um you are i've learned to attempt to be fearless um when when you do this kind of stuff i'm sure it's the same for you because yeah. you can fall down the rabbit hole of like 
oh my God, what if Professor A hears this? Oh my God, they're going to think I'm such an idiot. Oh my God, wait, there's another way of saying, wait, I've only talked about one side of it. Oh, I didn't say the other one. It's like- Or when you have to listen back to your own voice or video, it's like you're overcritical. Right. But you know what? You're doing it and the other people aren't, you Mm -hmm. know? And and so you're out there for criticism and it's okay. Um, It's, you know- uh, in terms of your pocket, I think it's great that you're doing what you're doing. You know, that's cool. Nobody else is doing it. You know, like, like, that's great. You were the one who was, was like, I don't know, was yours, was your beginning of this similar to mine? Did you have a day where you were like, I'm going to do this? I had one of the most like specific moments of my life where I had just like, I was in this class and it was the first quarter of online school. And so it kind of was that make or break time where it was either like all my other classes, I'm not going to say where they were flopping, but like, I was like, I'm just doing them online. I don't really care. We're in this weird time. This is so much. I'm just doing them. But my class, the bioarchaeology of disaster, she was like, you know, if we're all going to be a part, let's at least try to take this hour and 15 minutes out of the day to connect and to talk and to share stories. So we did these research papers. We did case studies on literally any disaster or like, anything. So I did mine on like a case study of cannibalism in like Homo antecessor and Grandolina because I wanted it to be osteology related because that's yeah. my interest. But then I got to listen to all of my other extremely passionate um, fellow students share what they wanted to study too. And I think having that opportunity to not just do a research project, but to pick a research project that you want to research and then share it it was so lovely. I was like so happy in this hour and 15 minutes. And I was like, oh my God, I wish I could just sit and listen to them talk with their projects all day. And then I was like, right. wait, wait. <laughs> and that night at 1230, I literally sprung up from bed from asleep and was like, I need to start a podcast. Right. I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. And I had this grand idea of podcasts don't cost anything to make, just like mm-hmm. making a YouTube video doesn't explicitly cost anything to make right other than that I already have my computer mm-hmm. and I just knew I was like this is what I need to do this and it was very early in the pandemic this was maybe like you know last April that I had the idea and then mm-hmm. started it in May and June of the pandemic so I didn't know that it was going to last a year right I was doing it to fill this small little void and I thought oh maybe in after summer, like, I'll be able to have UCSB guests on campus. That's what I thought. I thought maybe I'll be able to interview graduate students in a, like, a little uh, recording studio on campus, Mm -hmm. and that is not what it, you know, where we've gone, and that's totally fine, but yeah, no, I had this idea, like, this is something I need to do because I love hearing about anthropology, and people have cool stories that are inspiring. They have advice. There are people behind these, like, just the title or their last name on a paper there's so much more. There's so much that inspires them. There's so much that motivates them that, you know, makes them want to, you know, choose to research the Belize cenotes that makes them so, such a, you know, valuable person and researcher and scientist. And so I just wanted to highlight that. And so for me, like, that was a whole little rant about the podcast, but like, yeah, no, I, it really started for the same reason of like wanting to connect with people and Mm -hmm. wanting to share my passion for something that I love so much in a medium that was going to transcend weird new times that we were in. Yeah. Right. Totally. You know, and mine too, it was about um, connecting with people. Ultimately that's what it was because I, 
you know, you see so many archaeology shows on, you know, on, t- on TV and they're so overly serious sometimes and they're so overwrought. And I'm like, you know what? I just want to do it lighthearted, fun, a little tongue in cheek, a little like quick, you know, um, just for laughs, a little piece of candy for everyone with an archaeology theme, you know, and, and I, once I had that, once it crystallized in my brain, it was the same. I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. we're doing This is it. what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have some projects to continue in the future with a younger audience. I'm going to be great. starting next year some stuff targeted towards middle school, elementary school students. Great. Because I realized I'm hitting one audience and now it's time to, you know, take the same kind of ideas and yeah. go even further to not just be addressing like a that's, high school that's to killer. academic audience. Get it. Right. Get those ideas instilled even younger. <laughs> uh-huh. No, that's great uh, to broaden the audience base. That's really, that's really mm-hmm. cool. I think that's what we all try and do to some some extent, you know. Yeah, to our, to all of our abilities. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question I have for you to wrap this up, which I think sure. will be perfect, is you mentioned to me, and it sounds like you've been on more than one um, different documentaries, but it's specifically uh-huh. a show called Ancient Unexplained Files. Awesome name. Love their marketing for that. It totally totally drew me, drew me in. I saw that in the email and I was like, oh, what is that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, how'd you come across that opportunity and what did you do the episode on? All right. So um, that, it also, it relates, like we were talking before to my YouTube channel. I had that mm-hmm. day in my office where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do this. So I did the YouTube channel thing and, th- and that's all set up. And then I was more professional about like searching out like um, some sort of representation or some sort of agent or something yeah. to, in order to organize and make sense of when when production companies would come to me and be like, oh, you should try out for this thing. So I ran across this company called Past Preservers. And um, again, they represent people like me and, you know, not just archaeology, but but other people in the history world and whatever who are who are scientists or, you know, researchers or whatever, who can also talk to a broad audience. And so projects come to them now and then they shuffle it to me now in this world of trying to be part of a documentary you know I'm sort of the interviewed um Mm -hmm. expert you know uh where where you sort of see my head and I'm talking about whatever the theme is there's a ton of rejection because for every two times you're on tv they don't show you the 20 times when you weren't um and uh but i've really enjoyed that so i was on a show called what on earth and also the current one ancient unexplained files they're both on the science channel um what what you find in that world is whether it's the discovery channel or the science channel or whatever it's all kind of interrelated it's a bunch of small production companies making these shows and and so they go to past preservers and then past preservers sends me out on the equivalent of a of a bunch of little tryouts you know um where I mostly fail and sometimes succeed, such as the life of the actor. I was um, going to say, you're really getting what you bargained for starting as a drama major. You know, you're really getting that actor experience. Oh man, I swear to God, it's like everything old is young again. Yeah. I mean, it's like the circle of life. It's, it's hilarious. The stuff that I learned at UCSB and later at CSUN when I was in the, especially there when I was in their drama department, 20 years later I'm like these little tidbits like oh my Mm -hmm. god wait turn to the light oh wait how you know uh how's your how is your shirt a good color for the screen like all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff you know uh comes back and I'm so I'm so happy I know it um so for ancient unexplained files that there were I think there were 
10 episodes or something. I'm in most of them. I'm in where I'm just one of the talking heads, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, how these work is they'll send you out and the production company will interview you for like two long days, like, like a 10 hour or 11 hour day where you're just like in a chair, lights on you. And they Mm -hmm. ask you about everything in the archeological world, you know, and you just have to do the best of your ability and answer you know and go for it and you you can get worried because Mm -hmm. oh my god you're not a specialist in feudal japan yeah but but you just have to once you're at the level of you know masters or phd you you, you, you've collected things over the years i even find myself just spouting the most random facts and i'm like where did that come from Right. But you know, the basics behind it too, Mm -hmm. where like in the, in my example for the Maya stuff, like you might not be a specialist in the ancient Maya, but you could talk about ritual in general, you know, what's ritual like for human beings, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you kind of play it if you're not a super, super specialist. But I've been, um, again, I've really enjoyed my time working with past preservers and working with these shows every so often, you know, you get a call and again, many of them go nowhere but the but the ones that do it's it's kind of cool you turn on tv you're like oh my god look it's me yeah i'm I'm on i'm on the tv mom dad look it's me um so that that's been that's been a very very fulfilling part of my job it's been a lot of work for for what comes from that you know you have to um uh, go on all those auditions Mm -hmm. but but uh it's cool and and i think there's there's a certain area of archaeology who poo-poos that world and um uh I don't you know I I don't like the overly academic overly snobby world you mm-hmm. know that of, of that where it's like oh talking to the you know general public oh, yeah it's, just... it's so important and it's yeah we, we can't just live in the academy there's no that's it's so boring like who yeah. wants to even like the papers that you just can't get through because they didn't, they used three words where they could have used one. I'm like, what happened to the like taking words, unnecessary words out? Your point in this article is so simple and straightforward. And like half of college freshmen would be able to understand it if it wasn't just cloaked in this, yep. you know, insane. Yep. Whatever. I hate academic jargon and I hate all that snobbery. It's one of the worst. I, I just can't stand it. And what, one of the worst things too is when you're reading an academic paper and it's got all this blah, blah, gobbledygook and then three quarters of the way through, you're like, wait, they're saying that human beings tend to live near water. Oh yeah. God. You know, I know. <laughs> it, it, it's just, yeah, that, that world is very not me. Um, I don't feel a part of it, but I, I, mm-hmm. I very much enjoy the public aspect of, of bringing this to the people. And we can ultimately say, you know, people like you and I who work in this, in this realm, uh, you know, we're, we're telling the public and we're educating the public. Where do you think all the money comes from for all, all of the research that mm-hmm. the high-end academics do? It's from the public, public you know? Yeah. Where does NSF get their money anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it behooves us to tell the general public these awesome stories about archaeology you know they're they're fantastic definitely and such a special thing that we get to do and I think for me too as someone who doesn't want to go into academia I think I made my reasoning uh clear but also wants to have a career you know as an anthropologist and Mm -hmm. as a science communicator like it's so fun for me to see people that do it in their own way and I think especially within our 
broad field of anthropology, like everybody wants anthropologists. It is a marketable skill. It is, you know, in whatever you're doing, like you can use the, you know, your skill set. And mm-hmm. yeah, just a really, really cool. And hey, it sounds cool. And stuff like that matters. It does. You know, I mean, if you're talking to people, if you're at a dinner party or something and they go, and they, oh, what's your major? What's your major? What's your major? When you go anthropology, people go, anthropology. Every single person. Where have you gone? What do you do? And it's so great to have that moment where it's about you and what you do because it's intrinsically fascinating to people. Yep. It is 100% my party trick. Like, not that I do it on purpose, but just like you said, when it comes up in conversation, people ask what I do or like what I've been doing recently, I'll be like, oh, I have an anthropology podcast. And they're like, yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. You know, like, archaeology, like dig up dinosaurs. That's the number one thing that I have to say is, no, I don't dig up dinosaurs. And then I look at them and I'm like, I dig up people and babies. Right. <laughs> well, I always, for the dinosaur thing, we did on uh, in the cenotes find a giant sloth once. So we found <gasps> Uh, they're so huge we found it at 60 feet down in the sidewall of the cenote giant giant sloth fossil so i do get to say no i have not found a dinosaur but i have found a giant sloth sloth. yeah that's really cool i mean just like the whole place to see all the huge megafauna the pictures that they were some interesting looking critters and they were just very large the megafauna rock yeah right until something happened to them I know until <laughs> the comet or not. Yes. Okay. I was going to ask. I won't, I, won't, I won't put it in. Do you believe the comet theory? Because I just learned it in class. And my teacher, Dr. McClure, was like, I will be honest in that saying that my husband's father, like James Pennant, did the research on this. Oh, yeah. So she was, so she was like, I'm just saying it. She's like, I personally, like, after looking at the evidence, like, believe that this is a very, like, legitimate theory. But I learned it from, her and like saw her husband in the videos and stuff right. so it's like stuck in my mind now that's, like, that's so funny comment. i i think it's i mean i think it's a fair it's it's going to be one of those things it's just like the maya collapse it's like four different things yeah that's the thing a part of it and it's so you're, not it's not going to be like one sunday this thing happened and everyone yeah. died it's it's going to be a a mix and i and i think the research is interesting what's so funny to, to show you what a small world this is, Doug Kennett was my TA when it, when I was a student at UCSB. Really, it that's awesome. Yeah, world. no, he he. Well, did you meet Sarah McClure while you? Well, I don't. I guess McClure must be her maiden name. Yeah, but because uh, she, um, she did her graduate there too. I think she and Doug met there. Yeah, that sounds right. She was in like the group of friends. I I don't I I, I don't know her personally, like, but mm. I know I know Doug from like yeah. you know, the way way back. Uh, which is just uh, so so yeah. close. And spe- speaking of um, sort of what I'm doing to relate this to what I'm doing currently, mm-hmm. I've also recently started working with Annabelle Ford again, but oh. like at UCSB, um, working on uh, the final write up of the LPLR project. And it, it's very fun for me to work with her. So, I mean, this was sort of a COVID thing. You're, we're both trapped during yeah. COVID. We're just kind of like, hey, you want to work on the stuff? Um, 
it's fun for me as now an archaeology professor to see actual paperwork I filled out in like 1993. This like student, you know, it's it's yeah. so funny. It's it's almost a it's another person now. I'm like, oh, yeah. look at that! Look at what that guy did. You know, he did. Well, even the way like you imitate your voice being younger. Right. I thought it's so funny. Like he must think that he talked like that when he was younger, but I bet you still had the same like chipper, cheery, like bubbly, like way of way of talking. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's. You know, people are people. We don't change. But at the same time, I was afraid. You know, when I first mm-hmm. walked into Annabelle Ford's office, even even though there's nothing to be afraid of, I just that kind of stuff. I remember once I um, Napoleon Shagnon, who I think recently passed away. He was my professor for cultural anthro for anthro 2 and campbell hall i had to go talk with him at one point to figure something out and i so i I was living in ivy i rode my bike to campus did the whole thing locked my bike up walked all the way to his office went to his door put my hand in a fist to knock on the door and went and then i went home because i was too no i was too i chickened out i always tell my students that i'm like don't be me don't be me don't Don't do it because you're gonna walk in and they're like hi how are you how's your day going and not and a hard and like not hardly anyone but like professors are normally happy when people come in their office because they don't get a ton of office unless it's like the day before finals or something and they're like get away from me yes and i ultimately went to see him like a week later i got up enough courage like a week later and it was fine it was Mm -hmm. fine but i'm just telling you i i Mm -hmm. feel that uh, stress. And I always think yeah. about that too. Like when, when students come to see me, you know, I'm like, yeah. it's a stressful thing. I always leave my door open. Now during COVID, I have office hour three times a week. I even have an office hour for, at 11 at night just to make that's sure, great. you know, I, it's really like fun. Like we were saying accessibility, like that's, yeah. I'm sure for like even just two students, they're still thinking so much. I wanted to go to your office hours, but I had no other time other than 11 p.m. at night. No, but it's funny. The eleven, the eleven p.m. thing has become the like the eleven p.m. hang, like like seven oh, or eight people come and we just hang, talk about movies. It reminds me of what you said about your class, you know, during COVID. I, I just want to be accessible to the students, and I want them to have a little fun, mm-hmm. you know, and just hang and chill and talk about what was cool to watch on Netflix or whatever. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be anthro all the time. Yeah, you know, we just want to sort of maintain connection during this difficult situation. Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful way way to do it. And mm-hmm. I mean, is more park planning to be back in the fall? Uh, fall. Uh, me as the all powerful department chair, um, I, I I must tell you that the scheduling literally changes almost every week. Oh, okay, so, I just uh, know UCs just announced last week that they're planning now. They had no plans before, like they weren't saying anything. So for us, that's been a big like, oh, this is even a possibility. Yeah, but the reality, I think, how it will ultimately go down is it'll be some sort of funky mix where mm-hmm. I think some of the stuff will stay online just because I mean just because of enrollment just because of whatever yeah. um, I know at Moore Park I, I know a portion will stay online I'm sure I bet it'll be about 50 50 mm-hmm. um, and then some will be on ground and uh, rooming this is department chair stuff uh, and this will be the same at UCSB just the rooming situation is tough mm-hmm. because if you have to have social distancing in the room what do you do you know, a class is supposed to close at 40 with a with a room that you can now only have 16 students in. Yeah, See, it gets you actually kind of need the online portion one more time <laughs> because there's not going to be enough chairs. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's going to be a mess at UCSB. Yeah. We already have such few buildings. They did just build a whole new science building, though, so maybe right. that'll help. But. Right now, it just like Campbell Hall. What do you do in there? Like how many, you know, what's the cap? That's what we talk about behind the scenes all the time. Like uh, Campbell Hall. <laughs> I have traumatic you know? memories from Campbell, Campbell Hall. 800, I think? 
yeah it literally i think can fit eight to nine hundred right but um, what's the covid number see a lot less a sixth of that what, yeah, but probably right. even less because you can't have x amount of people in a closed space either right so where do you put all the students who are supposed to be like see like you have to have an online component me i'm like i'm not I'm not, I don't have to take lower divs anymore. Just let me back in the bone lab. Know, <laughs> That's all I, I want. <laughs> the lab stuff, man, it changes weekly in terms of yeah. what you can do, student number of students mm -hmm. you can have in, even number of students in the building. Yeah. Uh, it's, dude, I, I mean, I could bore you for 46 hours about this stuff, but it, it, I can just say it is a dynamic, ever-changing situation. Yeah. And I guess it's a good, it's a good, time to say too, you know, both of my parents have been teaching throughout this whole thing and just got kids back, you know, professors, teachers of all different levels have had yeah. to do just as much adapting as we've had to do as students. And, you know, oh, they God. definitely deserve credit for that as well. Yeah. I think because we're all slightly grouchy about our own positions right now with COVID, yeah. it's hard. It's almost hard sometimes to be like, everyone is also going through this. So we're all struggling. Like, oh. that's even why I like put out that tweet. I was like, everyone's busy. And it's totally okay, but like if everyone's busy, like I won't have two, like I won't have an episode next week. And like I'm sorry, but that's because people have lives and yes. they turn or they say, I, you know, honestly, when people email me back and they're like, I can't speak to you until after this date, I'm like, good for you. Set yeah. set those boundaries. You know that you have a big project coming up, like May right. 19th, like do that. And yeah, able to say no is like very powerful. It is. I tell my students that all the time. I'm like, you know, no is awesome. Setting the work work life balance and boundaries, all of that. Yeah, yeah, um, man. Yeah, this. You know, I miss. I mean, I miss the students. You know, obviously, I'm just a you know inconsolable ham, and and I, I need my audience. You know, yep. so I I miss. Do you have I dogs, you guys. Live. Do you perform you know? to the dog. Do you have dogs? Uh, yes, we have one dog. Okay, I was going to say you can perform for the dog. Yeah. Because I have my sweet little dog that's literally gotten me through. And like, she literally sits by me during every podcast episode. Like, why are you talking to the computer? Yeah. No, our dog has gotten to be a, a very popular individual in our household. So mm -hmm. Sophie has, uh, um, Sophie's got a lot a lot of attention this last yeah. year. So. They're going to be sad when we all go back. Yeah. It's going to be a big change. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Gonna... I really enjoyed this, Gabriella. You know, like anytime if it, if you need like a podcast part two, mm -hmm. Andrew can tell it now, you know, like yeah, I'm, I'm, definitely. Always, I'm always happy to talk just about whatever.